I'm going to pray over our time in the Word, and then we're going to dig in. Jesus, have your way. Jesus, as we come before your word, we recognize that we sit underneath the authority of your word. We want to be those who are changed by you. So Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction? Holy Spirit, would you bring a sense of the reality of Jesus and the work that he accomplished for us on the cross, through the resurrection, the defeat of death? Jesus, do that work. Way beyond any words I can say, would your word not return to you empty? Would it accomplish your purposes? That's what you said. And so, God, we desire that in this room today. Jesus, bring about a transformation. Amen. You know, I want to share something with you. God's been doing something really unique and remarkable in my life in the last six months. If you've been around, you may have noticed it, frankly, just in the way I preach and in the way I talk. Uh, The way I can describe it is uh, there's a change happening in my life. There's a pivot that's been made where God has been revealing to me a lot about my expectations of how he desires to work in my life and how he desires to work in your life, the church. And it all has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've been on this journey of, of recognizing that, that the Holy Spirit has more planned for us than oftentimes I, in my little brain, in my little vision for the world and for our church, would ever dream or desire. He wants to speak to us. He wants to mold us. He really wants to tear down strongholds in your life and and bring peace where there hasn't been peace and bring healing where there hasn't been healing. And one of the things God's been doing in my life is just teaching me this, uh, showing me, putting me around people who are kind of more understanding of the way the Spirit works. And and one of the things that happens when you get into that space is He begins to change your prayer life. As I've begin, begun to really read the scriptures and, and see the power of the Holy Spirit and all that he might accomplish in this place, in a new way, my, my anticipation of that is totally different. I've got to just be honest with you. I, this morning, as I was praying over this service, I was sharing with our tech team this morning as we were getting ready and praying over this service, but early this morning as I was praying over this service, my anticipation of all that he's got planned today in the next 45 minutes as we, as we go through this service is that he's going to do something remarkable, that he's going to change your life, that he's going to actually bring about a conviction that makes you different when you leave this room than when you first came in this room. And I have to tell you, that is so fresh and powerful in my life. It's so so good. And here's the thing about it. It's not about what we do. That's what's so powerful about this. It's not about, you know, having our our things in order and making sure that we do X, Y, Z the way a church ought to be. It's simply about faith. That's all that God's looking for. And there's very important things in in the work of Christianity and how we're to live out our faith. Those are all very important. But at the end of the day, what God's looking for in you is a heart transformation where you live out of a place of faith, dependence, actual faith, actual trusting in God that he is going to do something to change your life. As we study this book of Romans, we're coming to this section in Romans that's really fascinating. And all through Romans, what we've been learning is about the gospel of grace, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us and all that he wants to do in your life. In chapters 1 through 2, we looked at what it means for the Gentiles, those who didn't have the law in the Old Testament, to be guilty before God. And in chapters 1 and 2, Paul really laid out this polemic that said, God, God, as we stand before you, non-Jewish by heritage, if, if you're not Jewish in this room, that's probably most of you, we're guilty because even though we didn't have the Old Testament, 
You wrote your commands deep in the inner recesses of the human heart. In the fabric of having the imago Dei, the image of God inside of us, somewhere deep down, every human being, no matter who you are, Richard Dawkins, the militant atheist who's well known for trying to discredit God, deep in his soul, he knows the law of God, and therefore he is guilty before a holy God, just as every person is. And then in chapter 2, we looked at Jewish people who had all the promises of the Old Testament, all the words of God, all the laws, and Paul said the same thing to them. He said, the Gentiles are guilty, but so are the Jewish people. Therefore, all stand condemned before a holy God. There's not one person who's righteous, no, not one. That was the claim of Romans chapter 3. And then last week, we looked at those two powerful words that kick off the second half of chapter 3, the two most important words in every one of our story. But now, but now, we all stand guilty before a holy God, but now, Jesus has made a new way to be righteous with God. And it's not of our own doing. It's this free gift of grace that we receive by faith. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. Every bit of love God ever wants to pour into your life was fully poured into your life the moment you believed by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, period. You're adopted into his family. He loves you. And now what Paul is going to do as we move into chapter 4 is he's going to unpack that even further. He's going to actually go into this man named Abraham's life. We've studied him plenty of times before in this church, but he's going to look at this man Abraham from the Old Testament and explain that doctrine by looking at an Old Testament figure named Abraham. He wants us to understand that this is not some new tradition that's just simply new to the New Testament. Saved by grace through faith has been what God has done since the beginning of the fall. That is how every person has always been saved, by grace through faith. And he's going to show that to us through Abraham. Grace is when you get something that you didn't earn. Today we're going to look at two sides of salvation, grace and mercy. It's important that we're able to draw a distinction between those two things as Christians. Grace on the one hand and mercy on the other. Both are applied into our life the moment we receive Jesus by faith. Let's first look at grace. Grace is when you get something that you didn't earn. Grace is when you get a free gift that wasn't yours by work of merit. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who has works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Now, as we study this passage, a few things. First of all, we're going to be doing text-in questions today. We do this occasionally, once every month or every month or so, where we take a moment in the service to answer your questions. And I just want you to know the instructions will be up there, how to do it. Uh, But these questions can be anything. It can be related to the sermon or anything else in life that you would just like a little dialogue with the pastor. It's my chance to try to enter into some of the questions that you're wrestling with. So feel free, text in your questions, and I'll try to respond to those after this sermon. Verse 1 begins this way. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? What was gained by Abraham? 
It's a really interesting translation. If you go back to the original language, what was actually said there is what was found by Abraham. It's actually the root word is where you find that old famous saying, Eureka. It's the word Eurisco in, in Greek. And it means I found it. What, what was found? What was discovered by Abraham? In other words, Paul in chapter 3 has just said we're all saved by grace. And now he says, okay, let's take that thesis and let's look back to Abraham in the Old Testament. Does that thesis that we were saved by grace through faith, is that applicable in Abraham's life? Is that how he was saved? Now, why Abraham? Why of all the people that he could have gone to did he go to Abraham? Well, there's a few reasons why. First of all, I think it's helpful for us. We've been talking theology for the first three chapters of this book. I think Abraham's getting into a real person's life. He's saying, let's look at how this actually played out in a real person's life. But also, Abraham was a very highly regarded person in first century uh, Judaism and Christianity in the church. There were a lot of uh, false books of the Bible. Some of you have actually heard of some of these, and I know there's questions that people have of why were some books in the Bible included and other ones not included. The same thing is true in the Old Testament. There were these additional apocryphal books that were never part of the canon of Scripture. By God's Holy Spirit, he did not allow them to be in the canon for many different reasons. However, in ancient Judaism, as kind of like the form of Judaism that this guy Paul, who wrote the book of Romans that we're studying, he was trained in, they would have, in the rabbinic culture back then, taken in all these extra books and, and learned some wisdom from them. And in some of those extra books, you get these really crazy sayings about who Abraham was. You get stuff like this. Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Meaning, didn't he do something, and because he did something, then, then that was because he was found, then that's how he got righteousness in God's eyes? In another apocryphal book called the Book of Jubilee, one that's not in our Bibles, God didn't design it to be in our Bibles, but it was ancient rabbinic wisdom, it says this, Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So in first century, the person, as they, as they thought about Abraham and as Paul brings Abraham up as a case study for this thesis of we're saved by grace through faith. He's bringing up what is considered the most holy, righteous person that ever lived. He's putting him on a platform. And he's saying, this is who you view Abraham to be. You think he was almost a perfect man. There, in many traditions and cultures in our day and age, there are those who are viewed as an almost perfect person. You look at someone like the Dalai Lama, who's almost in this state of nirvana, almost someone in this state of Zen, according to Buddhist belief. So you look at someone in Catholic tradition, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is considered in Catholic tradition to almost be a, almost sinless and perfect. That's not from scripture, but that's kind of the traditional beliefs that are held in those camps. Abraham was right up there. That's how they viewed him. He was considered the epitome of righteousness and goodness. Now, what's interesting is if we look at the account of Abraham's life, which we're going to in just a moment, we know from the Bible that that's far from the case. Abraham had his blooper roll, just like I do. He had a lot of failings in his life where he did not live up to the perfect standard of righteousness. However, it's what they believed. He's saying, you want to talk about, want to ask the question, are you saved by righteousness and being a good person? Let's go to Abraham. Let's see how he did. 
And he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is said to be declared righteous simply by his faith. Chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis does not say that Abraham obeyed God and his obedience was counted to him as righteousness. It said he had faith in the God who saves and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's important we get our terminology right here. When it says counted to him, that language is used eight times throughout this section, counted. And it's an accounting term. It literally, the image that's being brought up is almost like a balance sheet. If you're an accounting and you're a finance person, you're going to love this. If you hate finance, I'm sorry, right? It's a balance sheet of a person's life. You know, you got your credits and your debits, and he's saying, okay, how does it all add up in the end that we might be found not owing a debt, but actually being found righteous in God's sight? And what you do and what you earn and kind of putting this all together on this balance sheet, and he says it all works out, and Abraham was counted as righteous simply because of his faith. Verse 4 and 5, he brings up this illustration. He says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. The picture is pretty clear. In those days, it's interesting, they didn't have as many safeties on uh, worker compliance as we do in our day and age. And so usually they get paid every single day. Because you can imagine if you went in and did your work and then four or five days went by without being paid, it would be really easy for the guy who's paying everybody to kind of skimp out on paying you what you were owed. So every single day, in order for workers to get paid fairly in that day, they'd get their paycheck for their work. And the picture is this. You go in to do a day's work, if you come back and you get your paycheck and you're walking home, you open it up and, and you look at it and it says, hey, there's no money in here. You go back to the guy who hired you and you'd say, I worked a whole day for you. I put in my work. I labored hard. You owe me some money. And he would justly have to pay you the money that you earned. And then he says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but simply believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. He gets the paycheck that he ought to have worked for to achieve, but he never put in the work to do, but he receives the payment by faith. The workers do his wages. Now, I want to take a moment here and just acknowledge something really important. Christianity holds a very unique place in all religions of the world when it comes to this exact doctrine. There are many things that separate Christianity from other religions and worldviews of the world. This is, by far and away, the most important who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us on the cross, namely that we can be declared righteous with God by faith and not by works. I was at a conference a while ago where uh, there was a panel of Muslim speakers and a woman got up there. She was deeply in, in her Muslim faith, wonderful. This woman just had so, she taught me so much about Islam and the heart of, Muslim, of Islam. I just learned a ton underneath her. And, and one of the things she said is she talked about her trip to Mecca that she made. As you know, there are the five pillars in Islam, and you have to go through these things to earn merit with God. And when she came back, she she was trying to use language that Christians would be aware of, and she said, I felt like after I made this trip to Mecca, this religious responsibility I had to do, and after I went through the whole process, 
I felt like I had been cleansed and I was born again because of making that trip. That was her language she used. And I was sitting back there going, man, that's, that's Christian language of being born again. And what you're trying to describe is this, this reality of, of having your sin washed away in full and knowing that you are counted righteous from God. But it's not what you do. There's no trips you can go on. There, there's, there, there's no amount of steps you can take or things you can do to get righteous with God. There's no amount of hours of prayer you can put in or amount of times you come to church to get that born-again reality before God. According to what God has revealed to us, you can't do it by making trips to Mecca. Long ago, I was a missionary in Thailand. I remember having a conversation with a good friend of mine. He was about to receive Christ. He received Christ shortly after this conversation with him. And he was deeply into, into Buddhism, into a specific form of Buddhism called Theravada Buddhism, which is practiced in Thailand. And in Theravada Buddhism, his mother was dependent on him to earn enough merit. Because she was a woman in that culture, she would not be able to achieve enough merit in her own culture to be reincarnated as a man in the, in the next life so that then she could get enough merit because of what she did to go to reach the next state of perfection. So as a mother, she was dependent on her son to earn merit for her. And as I was sharing the gospel with him, he said, Rafe, here's the problem. If I accept Jesus, my mom's going to be heartbroken. Because when I was a young boy, a Buddhist monk spoke a promise over me that said I would grow up to be a great man and I would earn tremendous merit for my mother's name. And so if I leave Buddhism and I become a Christian, then my mother won't be able to earn enough merit because I'm the only one that can earn it for her. And I want to say, I know that's what your tradition has taught you, but that is not reality with God. God has revealed to us how a person gets right standing with God. And it's not by making trips, and it's not by having good, well-behaved children who have blessings spoken over them, and it's not by all the things you do or don't do in your life. It's simply by accepting this free gift of grace through faith and actual turning and making Jesus Lord of your life. Now, before we go any further, let's consider this man Abraham for a second. Who was this guy? Abraham came from a family that lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, that was a pagan culture in that day. It's kind of a random story. Abraham was this guy who was living way outside. You'd never expect God to pick Abraham, of all the people on the earth, to make the patriarch of Christianity, to make the man who is kind of the father of it all. It traces back to Abraham when God made this original covenant. You never expect that he'd pick Abraham Abraham came from a family of idol worshipers. We know that from Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Let me read this to you. Joshua, when they're coming into the promised land, talking about Abraham, said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Talking about when Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Terah, that was Abraham's father, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Isn't that interesting? When Abraham got called by God, he was an idol worshiper in a place that had no recognition of God. Isn't that interesting? Can you just imagine God, right? Here's God. Here's how God works. Let's see. I'm going to need somebody who is going to be a patriarch, who is going to rise up to demonstrate incredible faith over his life. 
And I'm going to need someone who's actually going to go and, and march into battle on a number of occasions. And, and I'm going to need him to set the pace for all of the people of God for the rest of the history of humanity. He's going to be the guy that's going to start this whole thing. He'll be the patriarch. Let's see. Who do I got? Who do I got? Ah, there's young Abraham, idol worshiper right over there. Look at him bowing down to that pole over there. Okay, he's my guy. And he establishes him as the patriarch of the faith. Seen that good news for people like us? Every one of you has a story. We talked about that last week. Every one of you has a but now story. Were you, like, like Abraham, you, you were somewhere far from God. And, and God didn't pick you because you had your life in order. He didn't pick you because you were good at what you did. He didn't pick you because he was like, that's my guy, all the gifts that I need to really bring about the kingdom of God in human history. That's my one right there. I, and that, I'm, he's done everything right. She's done everything right. When he called you, it was just like when he called Abraham. Came from a family of idol worshipers. You didn't have your act in order, but he spoke. He said, Come follow me. And Abraham followed. That's your story as well. This is such great news for us. And then Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. While he was in this idol worshiping family, go and I'll bless you and make of you the father of many nations. Abraham's name literally means father of nations, Avraham, father of nations. And Abraham picked up all his belongings and followed this God that he had not known previously. He exhibited faith, not knowing where God would lead him. Isn't that interesting? When God calls Abraham, he doesn't tell him exactly where to go. He just says, come follow me, I'll show you on the way. He doesn't tell him everything he's going to do. He reveals that along the way. All Abraham gets is, come follow me. Come follow me. I got a plan for your life. I need you to exhibit faith. Come follow me. I know you don't know it all yet. I know you're going you're gonna, to, I'm going to put you through a lot of trials in your life, Abraham, and you don't even know that yet. You just wait till you get to Isaac on the mountain, Abraham. I'll reveal that one later on. Today, I'm calling you out of Ur. I'm calling you to follow me. I'll reveal it along the way what's next. That's how he works in our life. Genesis chapter 12, verse 11 to 13 Here's the thing about Abraham. Abraham had a lot of failures along the way. Genesis chapter 12, verse 11 to 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, there was a famine in the land of Israel. So Abraham goes down to Egypt. He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife? Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you are my sister, that it might go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. <laughs> Failure. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Abraham's married to a beautiful woman, and he doesn't want to get killed for her beauty's sake, and so he tries to convince everyone around him that the woman that he is married to is his sister. Talk about a failure. That is not a good moment in Abraham's life. Total failure. Later on, you want to know how bad it gets? Later on, Abraham's going to have a moment where God's promised to give him a child, and rather than waiting and trusting on God through faith, he marries a second woman named Hagar and has an illegitimate child named Ishmael, thinking that maybe I can force God's hand on giving me a, giving me a child. Abraham messed up tremendously in his life. He also had incredible highs in his life. God did extraordinary through him. 
He was willing to sacrifice Isaac, his, his chosen, beloved son. I can only imagine the amount of faith it took in that moment, but what you got to know when you look at Abraham's life is his life is not a series of highlight reels of the example of the faith. His life is just like our life. Seasons of incredible highs where God's just speaking and seasons where it's like, Abraham, really? What were you thinking marrying Hagar? That's a terrible idea. That was not God's desire for you. God, God chose this broken man and did the extraordinary through him. And it worked through faith, not because of what he did or didn't do. God's love for Abraham did not vary with Abraham's love of God. Isn't that interesting? Abraham's love of God went like this throughout his life. His faithfulness to God went like this throughout his life. It was up and down and up and down and up and down. God was faithful all the way through. His love was consistent from start to finish. He saw it through to the very end, and Abraham walked into his glory because of God's faithfulness, not because of Abraham's faithfulness. See, Abraham's story is good news for sinners and wafflers like you and me. It's good news for backsliders and doubters like you and me. It's really good news. Because if it's up to us to live a life of consistent merit and earning before God, we will fail. We'll be tired of trying to impress God over and over again. We'll be exhausted. And rather than laboring out of a place of love, knowing that you're loved despite what you do on a day-to-day basis, wondering, is God pleased with me today if I've said enough prayers or I've gone to enough meetings or I've done enough networking or I've preached enough sermons? I get to rest in the goodness of knowing I'm fully loved despite my doubt, despite my backsliding, despite my back days, just bad days, just like Abraham. God called me out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And God called you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He called you into a life of faithfulness where it's not up to your work to determine your righteousness. God grants it through faith. This is what grace is. It's a free gift that you didn't earn. And now, now, interestingly in the text, he moves to David. Look at what he does with David. He's, still, he's continuing to prove the point, but now he talks about mercy. Abraham didn't earn this free gift of righteousness. It was given to him. But now he says, just as David, verse 6, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. When David in Psalm 32 says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now David, like Abraham, is a man known by many of us as a man after God's own heart. He had a wonderful highlight reel. Remember when he took Goliath down by faith? Talk about a highlight reel. That's incredible. But he also had some terrible days. I mean, you talk about David's bad days. David had an affair with one of his best friend's wives when he was supposed to be leading the the men on the battlefield. He stayed home out of laziness, took a look at his best friend's wife while she was bathing, then had her brought to him so he could have an affair with her. When she got pregnant through the matter, he then killed one of his best friends, Uriah the Hittite. It was Bathsheba's husband. He had him killed in order to try to cover up the pregnancy. Talk about bad days. King of Israel... That's an immediate impeachment in these days. If that were to take place, bad joke, I'm sorry. That's an immediate impeachment, right? We would look on David if we were underneath his rule, and we would say, David, not fit to be a king. You know what we would actually say? We'd say, not fit to be a Christian. That's what we'd say. 
That <laughs> unbecoming of a Christian. Bad behavior there. And we'd be right to say that. And then deep down in our souls, you know what we would do? We'd say, he hasn't earned God's love. And then, and then, and then David writes this. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Can you imagine David writing that? Thinking of the mistakes he made. Years afterwards, thinking of his good friend Uriah, one of his closest, mightiest men. There's a portion in the Old Testament, it's hidden, it's listing David's mightiest men. And Uriah the Hittite, the man he had killed and slept with his wife, is in the list. One of it, they camped out together under the stars. They went into battle together. Nothing draws men closer together than going into battle together. Every man knows that. You go out and you fight a battle together with someone, you are drawn into that man, and he had him killed. You imagine writing to God, blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. See, when David looked back on his life, when he thought about all the mistakes he made, what came up in his mind over and over again was not the size of his mistakes, but was the size of God's forgiveness towards him. He wasn't defined by his mistakes. He wasn't defined by his errors. He didn't allow his failures and his sin and in the catastrophes of his life to become his identity. His identity was rooted in the fact that God was bigger than all of his mistakes and that God could forgive even a man like David, even a man who had someone killed and had an affair and had an illegitimate child. He could forgive that. How much more can he forgive you? If he can forgive David, can he not forgive you? See, this is what mercy is. If, if grace is getting this free gift that you didn't earn, mercy is when you don't get the bad things you earned. See, mercy is when you are, you've earned a punishment by bad behavior, but then you have that punishment removed by somebody. Grace is when you get a free gift. Mercy is when you don't get what you have earned. This is what in scripture we call double imputation. It's a technical term, but it just means there's two sides to the equation of what God's done for you. He's given you grace when you didn't earn it and you receive it by faith and he's given you mercy where what you earned was sin, but he took it away for you on the cross. There's this illustration, this picture that's been used to try to explain this. And the story is of this wonderful king just imagine for a moment, just go back to the old days, you're trying to picture this wonderful gray-haired king. He's kind of battle-scarred, but he's wise and he's noble. And he's led a good kingdom and he's, he's fought over many hard truths. And you can just imagine on his chest are all the medals he's won from, from, from courageous, bold victories in battle. And his men love him, his kingdom loves him. He's a good king. And one day there's a traitor among his men. One day there's a, one of the men who was from underneath him who should have been living in the kingdom, should have received all the goodness of what it meant to be under his authority. He rebels and he thinks that he could overthrow this good king. He gets this crazy idea that just maybe he could be a self-autonomous man and he, it would be better if he could be king. So he gets a few men around him, he throws a rebellion, he tries to overtake the king, tries to kill him, try to, tries to make himself on the throne of life. And the traitor's caught and defeated. He's all in his rags, this traitor is. His jacket's been torn in the battle. He's muddied and he's bleeding and he's broken. And you can just imagine him hunched over and broken. And he knows, he knows the consequence for traitors. He knows the traitors are put to death in this kingdom because that's how you maintain a kingdom. You can't have traitors living in the midst of a kingdom. And the, the king's men march this traitor. He's the only one that survived the battle, the one who led it in the first place. And they march him up to the king and the king looks at this traitor, 
And he looks him in the eyes, and you can just imagine the piercing eyes of this good king looking in this traitor, and, and there's this honest moment where it's like the king is seeing all of his sin and every wicked thought and intention of this traitor, and, and the man is just almost sheepish, like he can't look in the king's eyes. And the king looks at him, and he takes off that raggedy jacket off of his shoulders, off the traitor's shoulders, and then he takes his own purple royal robe off of his shoulders and he places it on the traitor and then he he takes off his medal of, of honor that he's earned and he, he puts it on the traitor's chest and he says in this kingdom you've received the medal of honor come on in welcome into the kingdom you will be treated as if you're one of my sons. And the man just has this shock on him. See, that's what grace is. This is what grace is. Grace is when rebels and traitors to the king of kings get the medal of honor from the king. And what ought to happen in a Christian's heart is you stand before that king and you go, I didn't earn that. I did not earn that. And the king says, welcome in. And the traitor, walking with the royal robe and, and the medal of honor on his throne, walks in with a look of bewilderment into the kingdom. He sees the meals placed before him. He sees the servants at his disposal. And he looks backwards towards the door from which he came through. And he sees the king's men pick up the traitor's filthy, raggedy jacket from the ground and give it to the king. And the king places that tattered jacket on his own shoulders. And he allows the guards to put him in shackles. And the guards walk him out to the crucifixion site where someone will pay the penalty for the rebellion. The king taking the traitor's place. See, that's mercy. Mercy's when, when you don't pay the fine for what you owe God. Grace is getting the medal of honor. Mercy is not having to pay the fine yourself. This is the Christian story. And what I'm trying to form in us this morning is this sense of awe and bewilderment that rebels like us could stand before a holy good king and be declared righteous when we were idol worshipers, when we didn't know God's law, and when we were fully sinful all the way through. God looked on sinners like us and said, through faith you receive the kingdom of God and I welcome you in as my own family, sons and daughters of the king. If you've received faith and you don't stop from time to time and just stand in bewilderment at the king who died in your place, I'm not sure if you got Christianity yet. I'm not sure if this has clicked in your heart yet. Until you identify with the traitor, until you identify with the rebel who ought to have been killed for his sin, you haven't gotten the story. I want to form in you a sense of worship. See, when we sing, can you imagine that traitor for his whole life looking back on the mistakes he made and knowing and looking down at his chest and saying, Medal of Honor, this is what defines me. The king took my place. I didn't earn it. Can you imagine that? That's your story. Grace and mercy flowing into your life. This is what Jesus has done for you. He took your place on the cross. He shed his blood where it should have been you, and he gave you the medal of honor when you deserve the exact opposite, and he's called you a son and daughter. That's reason for worship. It's reason for joining a church and lifting your hands up and saying, 
I have no idea why you picked me, God, but it's good. I'm here. I love you. I want my whole life to be defined by the fact that you gave your life for me and you love me, not my own doing. (laughs) Paul goes into this next section, and in just a few minutes, I want to explain this to us. Basically, what he says in this section, he says, if that sounds too good to be true, it's not, and it's open to anyone who will receive it. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 12 Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? In other words, was Abraham declared righteous before he went through that outward ceremony of circumcision that everyone thinks is how you get right with God? Or was he declared right with God after he was circumcised? Which one was it? Works first or faith first? And then verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Before he had done anything to earn favor with God, that's when he was declared righteous. The purpose, why was that? It was to make him the father of all who believe. I love how God switches here to familial language. It was to make him the father. That's why I remember Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. That's how we talk to our God, to Abba, Father. It was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What's he saying in all of that? He's saying it doesn't matter what you do on the outside. We will be led to do wonderful works in our life. Circumcision is a wonderful work. The work you do in your faith, God will do extraordinary things through you if you're a Christian. That's the promise. You've got the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring the kingdom of God. Did you know that? He's going to bring the kingdom of God through your hands in your neighborhood this week. Promise of God. He hasn't forgotten you. You're not useless in the kingdom. You've got the Spirit too if you're a Christian. And he's going to do it through you. It's amazing. And all those works he's going to do through you, Don't earn you one more bit of justification with God than the moment you accept him by grace, the moment you believed. Here's what this means. Nobody in history, nobody in history has ever been saved because they lived a saintly life. Isn't that good news? It's not not up to you to try to be Mother Teresa or to try to be some famous saint in the past. It's not up to you to live that well. That's not how you get right with God. He won me, and he'll secure you. Nobody in history has ever been saved because they volunteered at the mission over and over again. Nobody's ever been saved because they served in an after-school program enough times. Nobody in history has ever been saved because of enough outward prayers or enough memorizing of Scripture. Nobody in history has ever been saved by the countless hours they put into caring for their children or for caring for an aging parent. It's not what justifies you with God. Wonderful things. Hallelujah. God's going to do all this work through you. It's not what saves you. Nobody in history has ever been saved by donating enough money and giving it to charity. Nobody in history has ever been saved by proving yourself a hard worker and an overcomer, by muscling through hardships. Nobody in history has ever been saved by preaching good enough sermons or by writing well enough about God or by being a missionary in a foreign land. It's not what saves you. It's not what justifies you with God. Nobody in history has ever been saved by being baptized or being circumcised or by dying as a martyr for the faith. It's not what saves you. 
That is not how salvation is earned in God's economy. Your faith will do incredible things. But today, God invites you to receive righteousness through grace. God dying on your behalf. You can stop with the endless tyranny of trying to prove yourself impressive and rest in the love of God that says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, I love you as a son. Rest in that place. Church, we love to be kept busy with work. We do. We're... And work can be good. I love it too. I love my task list of the stuff I got to do and the visions I want to get accomplished in life. It's all good. It's wonderful. But if that gets dislodged somehow from your saying, hallelujah, I didn't earn it. God paid my debt. This is my identity. I've been forgiven by God. If all you do gets somehow dislodged, from your identity in Jesus and waking up every morning as a follower of Jesus who hasn't earned righteousness but it's been given to you by faith, you've missed it. And you're stuck in the circular, endless tyranny of trying to be impressive. God's done so much more for you. He invites you to rest, to know you are beloved, and to just worship God in the words, hallelujah, praise be to God. We didn't earn it. He earned it on our behalf. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. God, thank you that you are good. Thank you, God, that you have this incredible plan for our life where we haven't earned anything, where you chose us out of Ur of the Chaldeans, just like Abraham, when we were idol worshipers, and you said, I love you, I have a plan for you, and it's good. And you declared us righteous when we were far from you, when we were enemies of the cross. Jesus, for those in this room right now, for those in this room right now that don't understand grace, that are coming from worldviews and religions and backgrounds where they have been told they've got to go somewhere or do something to earn favor with God and are wondering if they've ever done enough to be right with God or they've ever done too much to be wrong with God. God, give the conviction that there is grace to be received by faith, trusting in Christ. Right now, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.